begin by looking at Ephesians chapter 2. If you'd like to open your Bibles there to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. Uh, this is what I call, it's what I consider one of the most gospel-saturated passages in all of Scripture. I mean, it just saturates with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, you may be very familiar with a couple of verses, particularly verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should go. So that's 8 and 9. But what I want to do this morning is hone in on two words. The very first two words of verse 4 in the middle of this passage is what I entitled the sermon, But God. But God. You look at that for a minute. The first word, but, is connected. And it's a contrast. What that word does, but, it looks back to the previous three verses, but it looks forward to the new subject, God. The first three verses, the subject is man. Man's situation. And all of a sudden, it says, but, God. So verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 are in relationship to man, but the subject now is God. What God has done on behalf of fallen, wretched man. And so what I'd like to do this morning is stand together. We'll begin by reading this passage. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So let's please stand together as we read God's word. Openly and publicly, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, my prayer right now is for someone who has never come to trust Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. That God, this morning, in verses 1, 2, and 3, that your spirit would give them understanding of their situation of their wretchedness before a holy God. That this is not just the opinion of a man, but this is your word. This is how you view us. This is your view of the human race, of humanity. And it is ugly. It is deserving of wrath. But that's who you are. But God, I pray, verse 4 would become a reality in their soul this morning. That they would be quickened. That they would be made alive to Christ this very day. And Father, I also pray for us who have been Christians for years. And Father, maybe the wonder of salvation has grown dim. Maybe excitement has left us. God, I pray for that person, for that soul. 
amazing would be put back into grace for them this morning. So God, your words for all of us, whether it's the lost sinner or the saved soul, that you would bring us to the throne of grace dear God. By the precious blood and the righteousness of the cross of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> With these two words, but God, we are introduced to the Christian message. The Christian message is not about reformation. It's not the betterment of yourself or how to become a better person. The Christian message is God's message to the world. And second of all, it's therefore our message to the world because we are God's children. The center of the message is God himself. It comes from him. It's been established in him. It is centered on him. As a matter of fact, this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ comes entirely from outside of ourselves. It comes entirely from outside the universe. It is a message that is foreign to humanity. It is foreign to the human race because it is of God. In order to understand the magnanimous message, how amazing God's saving grace is, we must not only understand how blessed we are in Christ, chapter 1, but we must understand from whence we have come. We must not only understand how blessed we are in Christ, but this. God, listen, God has made us alive unto Christ. It's not that when we come to Jesus, we're just blessed, but that God woke us up to see who Christ is, his splendor, his majesty, and his work. Verse 4, but God. What did God do? Verse 6, raised us with him, seated us with him. Verse 5, made us alive together with him. But let's back up and look at verses 1, 2, and 3. The outline is quite simple this morning. It's just two points. Man's wretched situation, verses 1, 2, and 3, and God's solution, is the second part, verses 4 through 10. Let's begin. We have to begin with the bad news. And here's why. If the bad news is not that bad, then the good news is not going to be that good. The more we water down the bad news, the less amazing God's grace is. So here's what Paul was doing here. It's like, really believe he's doing. After chapter 1, he explains how blessed we are in Christ. We remember verse 3, how blessed we are in him. And he spells that out for us. And then he ends chapter 1 in a prayer. But all of a sudden, in chapter 2, verse 1, as if some of the Christians in Ephesus might have forgotten their past, or might have gotten from where God had delivered them, he reminds them again. Why would he do that? Because we all, now and then, lose the amazingness of God's grace. We get into ratness. We get dry in our walking. But for the Christian, we're not immune to, to not immune to the things of this world coming in and, and pushing aside the amazingness, magnanimous. I do I stumble that word every time. The magnanimous truths of the grace of God. They kind of lose their, lose their savior. They lose their wonder as we go day in and day out, going to work and raising up our children. We kind of lose it now and then. We're, we're like the prodigal son, not just goes to sin. 
and it goes, does bad things, but as a particle, so sometimes it might be defined as one who has lost the amazing of grace. Or again, as I prayed for the sinner who does not know Christ, that their eyes would be opened to the wonder of Jesus Christ, to the riches of God that are in Christ. And the way to understand that is to back up and to understand our situation. To understand the wretchedness of man as God presents it to us in his word. Verse 1. He begins with you were dead. Let's never forget that we were spiritually dead. Let's never forget that. This is the truth about ourselves. That men and women are born spiritually dead. They have no life with their creator. Oh, we're breathing, we're living. We, 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 we move around physically, we grow physically, but spiritually there's absolutely no relationship with God. We're born judged already. We're born with the wrath of God hanging over us. Deservedly so. Because we're sinners. Notice what it says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. This characterizes man without God. It characterizes man without Christ. This is man without grace. He has no life with his creator because he's a sinner. And this is his natural state, by the way. It's his natural state. This is man from birth. He's born in sin. He's helpless to do anything about it. He cannot work his way up and out of his situation. It is absolutely impossible. He is hopeless to do so. He's dead, spiritually dead. The most concise summaration of this is found back in Romans chapter 3. It would be a simple parallel verses. A couple of verses, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Let me read them for you. Paul says the same thing, but in a different way, in just these verses in Romans chapter 3. I like what he says. He begins with a rhetorical question. What then? Are we better than they? Are Jews better than Gentiles? Do Jews have any kind of special advantage than Gentiles? No, we're all sinners, he says. Not at all, for we all have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Who does that include? That means everybody. You fall under one of those two categories. Doesn't matter what nation you're from, what color you are, what your ethnicity is, you fall under one of those two categories. And Paul's point is we're all sinners. The whole human race is fallen. What does that mean? Verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Oh, do some human beings act and behave better than others? Oh, yes, of course. Yes. Paul's not talking on this plane comparing humanity with humanity, men with men and women with women. We're not comparing people. He's saying, before a holy God, there is none who does righteous, no, not one. We can always find somebody we're better than. But when it comes before the face of God, we all miss the mark. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. We're, we're so bad off. The situation is so grim. We don't even seek after God. Who's the seeker, beloved? Who? God's the seeker. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. We live in a Christianity today that says, oh, what about the seeker? What's the bill of the seeker? God's the one doing the seeking. God's the one that sent his son. God's the one that sends his spirit. God's the one that's given his word. God is the pursuer of sinners. This is Paul's describing us. We're so dead, it means dead. 
The Greek word is necros. And there's no reason in Romans 3 or in Ephesians 2 to interpret it any other way than literally. There's no figurative language that's, that's demanding a change of that word, the meaning of that word. No. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now that's spiritually dead. So when you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It means you were born separated from your Creator. There's no relationship whatsoever. But to understand this, let's go further. We go into verse 2. Paul's not done painting this wretched picture of humanity in which you firmly walk. Notice what he says in verse 2. According to the course of this world. We'll stop right there for a moment. To walk means to live or to conduct one's life. We form. Now I was talking to Christians. He said, you used to go the course of the world, which all of humanity is going. I love the word course. Think of a country, uh, a race, okay? A race. How about better yet? This is the illustration I thought of during the week. How many of you have been trout fishing? Okay, a few of us. I've been hours and hours and hours trout fishing on many streams. Off Sable River up in upstate New York, even in, in recently, more recently in Montana, in North Carolina. But you just sit there, a lot of times fish just ain't biting. You're casting and the things going to your, your your lure or your worm or whatever your fly or drifting down the stream. And then sometimes you get really bored, right? And all of a sudden you see these Driftwood just drifting down the current. It's going a certain course. Everything in that river is going a certain direction. Doesn't matter what kind of shape, size that wood is, that driftwood is, or whatever. Sometimes it's debris. Sad to say, sometimes it's just a cup or pollution or something like that, right? And it's just whatever's in that river is all going that direction, even though it doesn't all look the same, weigh the same, right? That's what Paul's getting at. Whoever you are, because you're a sinner, you're all going the same course. You're all headed the same direction. It's the direction of the world. Look at verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course. No matter what you look like, no matter how good you were, no matter how good you back then, no matter how good you were back then, what you were like, what your background is, how were you raised, it doesn't matter. You're born spiritually dead, and you're on the course with the world. You're all going that one direction. And beloved, it's the direction of destruction. The end of that course is destruction. That's the reality of man. No matter how different we are from one another, we're all going down the same course. There's over 6 billion people in the world today. And they all might be pursuing their own goals and look very different. And they're pursuing different dreams and desires. But guess what? They're all in that stream. They're all on that same course. And at the end of that course is the wrath of God. Destruction. Judgment awaits them. That's the reality, Paul says. That's the world's course. Course means governed, influenced. You know, I, I love the irony of this is we live in a world today that says better yourself, do better, be a better person. 
And the world sees this with problems. So they come up with psychology. They come up with all these other methods of being better people, having a better humanity. But we've been trying this for how long? Ever since Adam and Eve. Where are we today? All headed in the same course. However, the world itself is governed by something bigger than it. By someone bigger. Here it is. Look at the next phrase in verse 2. According to the prince of the power of the air. So here you have the world going down this course, but there's someone else driving that course. It is the devil himself. The world itself is governed by the prince and power of the air, the devil. The devil controls the mind and the outlook of the world. The devil is in control of the course that the world is on. And that course leads further and further and further away from God. Romans chapter 1. Where the world gets to a place that says there is no God. Or it creates other images of God. The world doesn't know this. The world doesn't have the spiritual discernment. Their eyes have not been opened. But once, as Christians, our eyes are open to Christ, we see that it's not just the world, but there is a power, there is the devil himself that is driving and influencing the world to go this certain course, and the end of that course is eternal destruction. When everybody's like drifting, happily doing their own thing, drifting down the current of the stream, and at the end of that stream is a huge waterfall into the abyss of hell. Right? Paul's getting that here. The wretchedness of our situation. Listen, listen for a moment. The, the devil is cunning. He wants the world to be going down this direction without the world knowing that he is real. What's his, what's his main mode of operandi? Deception. Right? Here are some verses that help us out. He is called the ruler of the world, John 12, 31. The God of the world who blinds the minds of the unbelieving, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He's described as a liar and a murderer in John 8, 44. And if that's not enough, Paul told the Corinthians that Satan disguises himself as who? As a what? An angel of light. How does he do it? Look at the next phrase in verse 2. The spirit that is now working in the sons of obedience, disobedience, excuse me, the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience. In other words, he has a spirit in man that is an ally for him. So here's the picture that the Word of God is painting for us. You have where we're sinners. But no matter who we are, what we're like, what dreams or desires we're following, no matter how good one is, we're all going down that course. It's the world's course. But the devil is driving that world's course. How does he do it? He has an ally within each person. It's called their flesh. It's called their flesh. Their own selfish lusts. By working with the spirit of man, and the sons of disobedience, he has that spirit that he works with. The spirit of the unbeliever, the spirit of disobedience, simply put, the devil has an ally that resides in each one of us, man's sin nature. That's it. Man's sin nature. That sin nature, we go to verse 3. What's that like? We keep going, don't we? It's driven by selfish lust. Look at verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived. I like that, we too. Look at verse 1. You were dead in verse 1. Look at verse 3. 
and we too are formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Let's park right there for a minute. He's talking about as sinners, we are driven by our own fleshly desires. John says it best in 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from where? From the world. Who drives the course of the world? The devil. How does he do it? By appealing to their own sinful flesh and desire. He does so by the word of Beloved, we know this to be true. Now just think for a minute. We know this is true. Look at both individually and nationally and worldwide. Individually, we are selfish. Your pastor is a selfish human being. Yeah. And I still have that residue of selfishness in me. But before Christ, man, it was really bad. And if we are that way individually, no wonder we're that way nationally. Because people are governed by lust. Nations are driven by lust. Because people hate nations war. So when you listen to the news at night, no matter what channel you turn it to, and you hear what's going on internationally, we're not shocked, we're not surprised. We are told right here in these three verses it's very natural for this to happen. And we cannot change it. Jesus Christ did not come to better our world or to better people. He came to make brand new creatures in Christ. That's the message of the gospel. It's not even about reformation. It's about absolute transformation. It's about God raising sinners from the dead and making them alive unto himself. Beloved, we know this to be true. We know this to our own internal problems in our own country, not to mention our own lives and our own families. So when you read 1, 2, and 3, we go, yeah, I see that now. First of all, we know this is God's word. We trust God as the word for our authority. God tells us the truth. God tells us the way it is. In these three verses, he tells us the situation of the human race, of all humanity. So let me kind of sum that up for a minute. We're dead. We're dead. We're spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. Not only that, no matter who you are, you're going down the course with all of humanity. You're going down that direction. And the end is that big waterfall into the wrath of God. How wretched a situation. But not only that, it's so bad that even the devil has tricked the world and keeps the world blinded so it continues to go down that course. And we are helpless and we are hopeless, period. But look at verse 4. But God. That doesn't make any sense unless you understand the first three verses. But God. This is not a self-help program that Paul's talking about. This is not psychology. This is not pragmatism. This is not mysticism. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is doing here in just these three verses is getting to the Christians in Ephesians to remember 
their helplessness and their hopelessness to show them that it's all of God's grace, not 99.9%, but all of God's grace. Look at the end of verse 3 as we sum this up. It's naturally humanity is under the wrath of God. Look at this. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Therefore, it is natural that we're under the wrath of an almighty, holy God. God is holy, holy, holy. But God, naturally, in his holiness, places sinners under his wrath. It's where we deserve. It's what we deserve. Therefore, we're all under judgment. You know what this means? This means this. It means that a good person, a loving spouse, an honest worker, a civic humanitarian needs Jesus Christ to save them just as much as the drug addict, the alcoholic, the adulterer, or the homosexual. All those folks are on that course going that direction. Because it's not about all the sins that we commit. The whole point Paul is, is driving at is, by nature we're all sinners. It's not enough just to Christ, my son, was not sent just to die for all the sins you've ever committed for all time. Yes, but he took care of your very sin nature. He came to make you a new creature in Christ. To give you that new nature, that new disposition that wants and desires and falls in love with Jesus Christ. Beloved, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. Your salvation is a miracle. That you follow Christ is a miracle. That you hunger and thirst for the word of God is a gift of God. It is a miraculous work of the Spirit inside of you. It's a result of Him indwelling you. Therefore, it's all of God's grace. Being the very nature, I think it's Ezekiel that says a leopard can't change his spots. A leopard cannot stop from being a leopard. Therefore, a sinner cannot stop from being a sinner because it's his nature. The dog can't stop being a dog. It can't stop being a cat. Right? We cannot stop being sinners. So it's natural. We don't even desire to want to change. It's how natural it is. Unless God gives graciously that desire. You know, a man admits so many things. I've mentioned a few of them. It's also self-esteem, tolerance, socialism, capitalism, communism, nationalism, self-help books, traditionalism, legalism, religion, men over the centuries have developed ways in which to help themselves because they understand their situation. You know what is amazing to me? Every generation thinks it's better than the previous generation, and therefore they try harder to do better. Well, here's a problem. We need to fix this about us and fix this in society and this in culture, this economically. We need to do this, this, and this, and this. But that's been going on for thousands of years. And where are we at today? Under our own strength and under our own might and under our own determination, we're in the same spot. We're still going down. We're drifting down that course of the world, driven none other by the devil itself. These are all smoke screens. All these things are smoke screens. Nationalism, democracy are smoke screens. They never fix the problem, the sin problem. They are smoke screens invented by men and encouraged by the devil to prevent them from seeing the solution but God. Let's go to verses 4 through 10. Let's look at the amazing solution because of the wretchedness of the situation. The amazing solution, verses 4 through 10. 
this spells out for us. That it's really consolidated, it's captured in these two words, but God. Think about it for a minute. Who is this God? The end of verse 3, he's a God of wrath. He's a God of wrath, right? You see that in the end of verse 3. And we're by nature children of wrath. Under the wrath of God is what Paul is getting at here. But not only that, look at verse 4. God is law. This God of wrath is also God rich in mercy. He's also God of great love because of the great love which, with which he loved us. That's why we have the cross, beloved. On the cross, we see all this come together. We see the wrath of God being poured out on his only begotten son because he's showing mercy to us sinners and showing us and demonstrating how great his love for us is. God of people, this is, this, this is amazing grace. It's not superficial. It's a, it should blow you away. And that's the whole point of verses 1, 2, and 3. To show us the wretchedness of our situation so that when we come to the grace of God in Christ, we are amazed by it. Not just, oh, that's nice. You don't say, woo I'll go to church here once in a while. I'll go to church once a week. Yeah, all right. No. But God, I love verse, look at verse 1. And you were dead. Verse 4, but God. You were dead, but God. The only thing in between those two phrases is the explanation of deadness. It is how dire and how, how terrible the situation is. How wretched of a condition we are in. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead. Uh-oh. Even in that state of being dead, verse 5, in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. He's done three things. Look at the text. Verse 5, he made us alive. Verse 6, he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him. Now, that's amazing grace. Well, what did I do to earn that? Not a thing. It's a gift. He says, I'm going to wake you up so you will receive that gift. So you will take that gift. That gift is in my son. You were so dead, I had to open up your eyes to see it. So you were spiritually dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which is so great that there was nothing lovable about me when he saved me. God did not save me because Jim was worth saving. I am a wretched sinner deserving of condemnation and wrath from a holy God, but God had pity on me. Do you know what the picture in Ezekiel 16 is? Now, forgive me. It is a gross picture, but it's scriptural. The picture of Israel, here's what happened. Israel had left God. God had chosen. He picked them out. He adorned them and dressed them and blessed them. And yet they fell in love more with what he gave them than himself. And God gave them a picture. Ezekiel 16 of this. You were like a newborn baby in a field squirming in your blood, helpless and hopeless. He says, that's how you start out. And I chose you, and I picked you, and I blessed you, and I adorned you. And after all that, you walk away from me. That is not a pretty picture. We want to look good. I want to feel better about myself. And the world tells me I should. But the scriptures say no. You're spiritually dead. But God. You see, 
if I'm a really okay person, a pretty good guy, if God saved me because I'm pretty good, then really that really begins to belittle the greatness of God's love. It becomes more conditional, doesn't it? Well, it's a little bit, yeah, I think it is. He's somewhat of a good guy. And so there's a condition, but it's unconditional love. First, God made you alive unto himself. Second, he's giving you a new position, which means where are you at right now? Oh, think about this for a minute. Where, where does God see you right now? Listen, if you're in Christ, you're alive together with him, you're raised up with him, then you're seated where? Verse 6. You're with him. You're in the photo grace because wherever you go, God notices. God desires. You're his child, in other words. And God sees everything you do. Because he cares about everything you do and everywhere you go and everything you think and everything you feel and what your motives are. You are in his only begotten son. And therefore, every time you pray, he hears you. He cares about the hairs on your head. He cares about the most intimate detail of your life. And most importantly, your character. Because he's in the business of conforming you to the image of his son. This is amazing. He, this is a, this is a, a picture of the resurrection. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. It's not that I have one foot on earth and one foot in heaven. It's that I am in the presence of God. That's the picture being painted here. That's what Paul is saying. Oh, I'm living one foot in the earth and one in, the, and one in heaven. No, 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 that is not the idea he is teaching here. That's not the idea being conveyed. What's being conveyed is you are in the presence of even though you're here on this plane on earth, you are in the presence of God. You're living in his presence. Amen? But I'm not feeling like it. The word of God is true. Christ is true. But I'm going through a hard time in life. That doesn't change the truth. Does it? Well, I, don't, I feel as if God doesn't care where you're seated right now. What, is it, what does the Bible say? What does the text say? What's the reality? Where are you at? And you walk every day knowing this. This is not just a truth to go, hey, that's nice, let's walk away from it. This is a truth to get up with every day. We, we as Christians are to preach the gospel to ourselves, not just the lost world. Why? Because I need it daily. Verse 7, so that, here's the perfect statement, so that the ages to come, he might show something he might show what? What does God want to show? How great we are? How splendid we are? How wonderful we are? No. He might show the surpassing riches of His grace, how kind He is towards us who are in Christ Jesus. Wow. That's God's purpose. And so you get to verse 8, the famous verse. For this reason, for this reason by grace you have been saved. What reason? For when I spelled out the first seven verses, for this reason, for by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, because there is no room for boasting one gives. I can't claim one-tenth of one percent of my salvation. It is all of God. Not only Am I in Christ and blessed with all that is in Christ? But I am so blessed that God Himself reached down to me and awakened me to the greatness and the splendor and the majesty of Jesus Christ. He is the one that caused my eyes to see so that I would actively put my faith in Christ. So ultimately, even my the, the, the fact that I believe and follow and trust Christ, I gotta give the glory for that too. 
It's all over the place. And so I can't go to somebody in the streets and go, why aren't you a Christian? You're pathetic. You wretched sinner. You should know better. Or I can't go, oh, you're, you're a wonderful wife to your husband. And you are, by the way. My wife. Anyway. You know, but it's, and you just, oh, you're hard working, you're just fantastic, and they go to somebody, I'll do this with anybody else. They just pick out a, somebody we don't know, they say, you're, you're, you're a drug addict, you're terrible. So you see, it's not about comparing humanity with humanity, with people with people. It's about individually comparing yourselves to a holy God that we all fall short. And we work all in grace. The Christian message is simply this, but God, but God makes sinners anew. Yes, we can be delivered from this world we live in. We can be delivered from the wretched, sinful world that we live in. We can be delivered out from under Satan's influence. We can be delivered from our own wretched sin nature. But the only way to be delivered is by turning to the only one who can deliver you, and that is the creator of you, Jesus Christ. And you've heard the message this morning. And if you've never come to Christ, if you've never seen yourself the way the Bible paints you as a wretched sinner, just forget what all the other humans say. Forget what all the geniuses on the earth say. Forget what culture and society says. What does God say? That if you really believe God at his word, you're going to see yourself in this hopeless, wretched situation and then you say, but God, you read, but God, God, what? Rich in your mercy, great in your love, sent your son to die for me. So you see yourself in this hopeless, helpless situation that only God can deliver you from. So you run to him. And the only way to run to him is to run to his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. That is the Christian message to this world. It's not about becoming a better person. It's not about becoming moral. It's not about morality. It's about a personal relationship with God. It's not about God reform my life. It's God give me new life. I need you. I have to have you. If I don't, then I'm going to go along with the regular course of the world, with all the other billions of people heading this direction, and one day it's going to end. I'm going to go down that waterfall of death, eternal destruction. Don't be deceived by the evil one who is driving that course, by the way. Come to the only one who can deliver you. Come to Jesus Christ. Put your faith, your hope, your all in him. Trust in him alone. It's his blood who is shed for your sins. It's his righteousness that you need. Ours, yours, as his filthy rags. Come to the Savior. Come to Christ the Christian. If you have noticed that the, the, the flames of excitement going awry or, or, or dimming down. Oh, my prayer is that the amazingness of God's grace would come back into your life. That you would once again see from whence God has delivered you. And that you would get excited again. You know how you can tell if someone's excited? When the shells, they themselves are sharing the gospel. Or at least they're looking for ways. Looking for people to share the gospel with. Why? Because they're excited because they understand the amazingness of God's grace. Pressure? Yeah, pastoral pressure on me right now. Just I should put on myself as well. To God be the glory.